0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode of Sapad Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianisation podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabon and today I'm joined by Dr. Ian Black, visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Centre at the LSE. Most of you will know Ian from his work with the um, with the Guardian, where he's reported on a range of Different aspects of Middle Eastern politics, the Arab uprisings, the aftermath in Syria, Libya, Egypt. He spent time in Iran, Gulf, across the Middle East, written extensively on Palestine, Israel, and uh, and the history of that conflict. So it's really exciting that we have Ian joining us today. Ian, thank you so much for, for sparing some time to talk to us. Pleasure to be
1: with
0: you. It's really exciting. I've been reading your work for... Well, as long as I've been interested in Middle Eastern politics, I think. So it's it's great to talk to you about what's going on and, and what provoked your your interests and your writings and 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 all of that. So with that in mind, Ian, can you tell us why why did you go down the route of, of an interest in Middle East politics, in, in journalism, when you could've focused on any part of, of, of global affairs?
1: Well, I think it's, it, it goes back to when I was a, a, an undergraduate in Cambridge in the early 1970s. Um, the the Palestine question was starting to attract uh, much more attention sure, in those yeah. days. There was a sequence of events, perhaps just worth recalling. There was the Black September in Jordan, 1970-1971. There was the notorious Munich Olympics massacre, yeah. uh, which really attracted attention uh, in in. In a, in a fairly bad way to the Palestinian cause. Sure. Of course. Um, then there was the 1973 war. So all those things were going on when I was a. A student. So, as I contemplated what to do next, uh, in a way that was a lot easier in those days, it has to be said, I sort of um, decided that I would uh, look more closely at this this issue, and I ended up uh, with a research project for for a doctorate, actually at at LSE uh, on the on the period of the British mandate in Palestine.
0: Well, that explains a, a great deal, then. That explains the uh, the current affiliation with the LSE, I guess, and the, the broader interest in, in Israel-Palestine. Might I ask, what were you reading at, at Cambridge at the time of your, your burgeoning interest in, in this field?
1: Well, I was studying history and what was then a new uh, degree in social and political sciences. I think it was set up in, uh, at that time to compete with... Um, with PPS at, uh, at, at Oxford, sure. so I had a combination of you know fairly standard historical studies plus a dose of uh, then what was then in some ways fairly new social science, political science, uh, and and the two together brought me to the Department of Government at uh, at LSE. But I have to say, not that it really matters, but there's no connection between the fact that I. Uh, did my doctorate there, and the subsequent thing forty years later, <laughs> when I uh, was invited to go back to the Middle East Centre.
0: So, just a nice symmetry then, perhaps. Yeah. Sure.
1: A coincidence.
0: Okay, fair enough. So, can you tell us a bit about your your doctoral thesis then, Ian?
1: So, like you know, any sort of historical research, you've got to have the, the raw material. And in those days, both in, in archives, both in, uh, in in this country, in Britain, and in Israel, they were starting to release uh, documents which allowed researchers to look at the original raw material rather than rely on the, as ever, then as now, uh, the, the, the polarized narratives and the very divisive debates about the issue, so that was a way in those years, and the talking about the mid 1970s, of looking at the early years of the uh, British mandatory rule uh, in Palestine, and I focused uh, on the question, the key question, it seemed to me, uh, of uh, Zionist attitudes towards. The Arabs, Palestinians weren't particularly called Palestinians in those days, but they were the Arab population of Palestine, who, of course, from the beginning, from uh, from the beginning of British rule in 1917, were opposed to what they saw as a uh, as an illegitimate uh, enterprise by uh, foreigners. Uh, sure. but the documents were key to that, both in Britain and especially in Israel. And what
0: did you take out of those documents?
1: I think in the big picture what I took out was the um, uh, inevitability of uh, the clash that took place between the Zionist movement and the Arab population of Palestine. And that was significant in a sense because uh, I think the mainstream Zionist narrative was that it was all about bringing benefits to the land which would be shared with the uh, native population Um, and uh, indeed there was some evidence of that, there's no question about it, but at the political level from very early on uh, from from the Balfour Declaration and the British conquest of Palestine, there was no question about the opposition of what were then the vast majority of the population to the uh, Zionist presence, which of course was uh, written into the terms of the British mandate. It was not just the question of British rule, it was a question of British rule that adopted a project that was opposed from the start
0: by the uh, majority of yeah. the... The the native population. I guess there was another set of challenges of of doing this at the time in terms of the sort of the intellectual, political, social climate in which you were working. I mean, we were operating at a time when when relations between Israelis and and Palestinians are are fractious. But but in the in the seventies there was a sort of, I guess, a violent form of resistance to to the other, right? Which, which must have made this quite a, a difficult project to work on.
1: It was always a difficult subject, and it remains so. It's highly contentious, but I think that actually in the big picture over the years, you've seen uh, a shift in understanding, uh, far more understanding perhaps, of the Palestinian side of the story, uh, which has, in, you know, in recent decades has um, has had much more um, exposure, if you like. And of course, Palestinians themselves uh, have, uh, in different ways, contributed to this greater uh, understanding. The political circumstances, as ever, uh, uh, and also the social circumstances, if you like, given the absence of a state uh, to this day. Uh, create a lopsided picture, but I think that the overall narrative has changed. So it was—it's fascinating to look back on those days, you know, quite boring and lonely days. Well, yeah, not really boring, but lonely. Lonely, yeah. In the archives and uh, like looking at uh, the original documents from uh,
0: from that time. It's fascinating, really, really interesting to, to hear about that. So, you, you finish your, your your doctorate at the LSC, and, and then what happens?
1: So, then I, um, in the way that was easier in those days, I think, um, for my generation, um, I didn't really know particularly what I wanted to do. I wondered about uh, pursuing a, an academic career, but I actually... Uh, drifted into journalism, which was uh, which was much more fun, actually, than sitting alone in
0: archives. <laughs> sure, yeah.
1: The gratification was much more immediate. You know, you would write a few hundred words and, you know, thousands of people or possibly tens of thousands of people would be reading it uh, in those days, the next day rather than immediately on, on social media. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that was how I... Made uh, you know an unplanned transition, if you like, from having academic ambitions to um, to operating in in real time in <laughs> the contemporary world.
0: Well, the academy's loss is certainly journalism's gain, and uh, and and everyone else's as well. And um, th- going back to that that point, then Ian, who were you working with when you first when you first went into journalism? And do you remember the first piece that you wrote?
1: Well, I don't remember the first piece that I wrote, but I was working for lots of different people. So I was still, at the time, uh, finishing my uh, thesis or the research. Uh, I was living in Jerusalem, and I worked for lots of different... Uh, media organisations. Uh, I work for the uh, the New Statesman and the Sunday Times and the Irish Times and a paper in Sweden and a paper in the Netherlands. Right. Uh, and I also work for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, which in a way was the most interesting because yeah. at that time the Jerusalem Post, English-language Israeli newspaper, was uh, a liberal newspaper. It wow, okay. isn't anymore, it's yeah. like a right-wing newspaper. Uh, and I was appointed to be their correspondent for the Occupied Territories. Okay. So they weren't called the Occupied Territories, they were called the Administered Territories, which is a reflection, of course, as ever, of the uh, you know, choice of terminology reflecting the political situations, but that was a fascinating and I think very formative experience.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, what what type of issues were they particularly interested in at the at the Jerusalem Post, a left leaning newspaper, which is very incongruent to me that idea.
1: Well, you have to go back to those days. This yeah, was the, this was about. 1976, uh, the occupation, which is now over half a century old, was then less than uh, 10 years old. And the, uh, I think the interesting thing, in retrospect, and maybe at the time, was that this was a novelty for that English-language newspaper. The uh, Israeli-Hebrew newspapers uh, were already covering uh, what was going on in the occupied territories, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, uh, uh, and so on, uh, and for this English language paper, this was a novelty. So I was, um, I was really a, a kind of pioneer in this area, and it was fascinating to discover the realities of life under an occupation, which was relatively new. Uh, and in terms of dealing with the, you know, the obvious sensitivities of the subjects were. Living Under Israeli Military Occupation, yeah the newspaper was an Israeli one, albeit for a liberal audience, and they were, they, it wasn't an easy thing to do, but I learned a huge amount uh, at uh, what was, you know, I was relatively young in those days, and I was helped, of course, by both uh, Palestinian and Israeli colleagues who were enormously, uh, enormously experienced and and um, I think I benefited uh, hugely from
0: their, uh, their cooperation. I can imagine. It, it sounds like a, a hugely formative but also incredibly fascinating time, albeit deeply depressing and frustrating, I can imagine. What were, what were they particularly interested in, though? I mean, was, was it the, the social aspects? Was it the economic? Was it the political, the security? Or was it a, a general understanding of, of the other
1: I think it was a general, if limited, understanding uh, of the other. Um, the the politics then were that, uh, contrary to now, there was hope, uh, a reasonable hope of uh, some kind of uh, political process that would lead to a settlement. Again, you know, this was just a few years after the war of nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah. Uh, the the for example, an important difference from from now, from subsequent years, is that the Israeli settlement enterprise in the West Bank was extremely limited. It was nothing like uh, the numbers that are there now, close to you know, more than half a million people. There were you know, there were a, a handful of Israeli settlements in the West Bank, and the sense was that. Uh, you know, that was negotiable. I think actually the most memorable element and most memorable event in that period was, was something that was uh, related but very different, which was in 1977 there came the visit to Israel of Anwar Sadat, the then Egyptian yeah. president. That was a, a truly Exciting, even electrifying, uh, moment on which I reported for actually the uh, the Sunday Times. That was quite exciting. My first byline, I think, in a in a major uh, British newspaper, which uh, uh, which which I do remember to this day. And I was at the airport. Right. I think it was on a Saturday night when uh, Sadat landed. Uh, in Tel Aviv. That was a very, very memorable moment for the excitement on the Israeli side.
0: Sure, and yeah. And,
1: of course, for the dismay on the Palestinian side, the, the dismay that was still tinged, I think, at that point by uh, some uh, hope of uh, that, you know, that something good might come out of this. It's important to point out, of course, that Sadat's uh, move then in 1977 was the first ever public uh, contact between an Arab leader uh, and Israel. There had been clandestine yeah. uh, uh, relations before, but it was a hugely important moment.
0: And of course, he, he later paid a, a pretty terrible price for that move.
1: Well, he did indeed. I mean, the, he was assassinated in, uh, in 1981, uh, largely because uh, he had uh, been deemed to have The uh, conventions of uh, Arab politics. Uh, And of course, his assassination uh, nevertheless didn't put an end to the peace treaty that was eventually signed. Sure. in 1979,
0: and, and rather interestingly, still holds to this day. Yeah, it does. It's it's a peculiar one, but um, but a positive, I guess, in a region characterised by less than positive um, issues, let's say. So, were you still in Jerusalem in 1979? Did you carry on there for a while?
1: No, well, I I, I did for a while, but in 1980, actually, I uh, was uh, I got lucky. Uh, Brandishing some of those uh, bylines, I (laughs) got a job at the Guardian in London, which was uh, obviously an enormously exciting thing. Yeah. To um, to happen Uh, was a very big deal. So uh, yes, I uh, I entered the the uh, I don't know how to put it really. It was an extraordinary (laughs) thing to work for such a, a famous and highly regarded. Uh, newspaper. Yeah, of course. Uh, even even before the, the digital age, which has changed so much. Yeah, uh, it's hard to remember. It's hard to imagine that uh, you know, like there was life before emails and mobile phones and, and Twitter <laughs> and Facebook. But there was, uh, and in some ways, it was. It was. Uh, I think it was the the slightly, slower pace of things obviously course could always get very hectic even then but the slightly slower pace of things was an advantage actually even though of course there are clear uh, advantages to uh, the technology that we all benefit from today
0: yeah certainly before we move on to to your time at the guardian i must ask you quickly if if, if you have any rec- uh, ref- reflections about uh, the fallout from the Iranian Revolution in 1979 while you were in Jerusalem and while you were working for uh, for all manner of agencies out there?
1: The Iranian Revolution was clearly uh, an enormously important event uh, across the Middle East. But I think that, like many important events, its significance became clearer more in retrospect than it was at the time. Sure. Um, you know, I think there is a there's a sort of basic human habit to um, focus on where you are and what you're doing. Now, I certainly was aware of it, and I certainly remember uh, being very impressed by the reports in The Guardian, written by the colleague and friend. Uh, who was played an important role in my working life. It was Martin Willicott. Martin Willicott was the Guardian's was a roving correspondent. Right. And he reported from uh, Tehran during the Iranian Revolution. And it is well worth revisiting uh, what he wrote at the time. He was an extremely experienced and smart uh, correspondent. And I think that for the readers of that of that newspaper, he was an enormously important. Uh, he, he made an enormously important contribution to understanding of that. My own experience of Iran was a little bit later, though not long afterwards. When I was back in the region again a few years later, I and I was based in Jerusalem with a regional role. I visited uh, Iran quite a few times, uh, and, that, and that was, of course, during the 8 year war with Iraq, which made a, a, a very powerful uh, impression on me. Uh, it was a, a very extreme and, of course, very lengthy um, uh, experience on both sides. It you know, lasted yeah. twice as long as the First World War as well.
0: Yeah, of course. So, it's, I mean, I could sit and talk to you all day about this, Ian. I could sit and talk to you and ask you so many questions about time spent in certain places and reflections, but I'm conscious we are we are rapidly running out of time. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the challenges of, of reporting on a region as a whole that was so fluid in so much flux, because... Uh, that that must have posed a range of, of serious challenges to ensure um, accurate information and, and a quality of, of coverage.
1: Quality or equality?
0: Well, both, I guess <laughs>
1: I mean, you know, I think that I don't think the Middle East is any different from any other part of sure. uh, the world. Yeah, uh, I think that if you know, if you're reporting on it, you need to uh, you need to follow things closely. You need to be on the ground in the countries involved and not sitting in London or Washington or Paris and pontificating. I do really believe that that is one of the fundamentals of reporting. Reporting means being on the ground. Knowing people, uh, managing to get on with governments, regimes, but also knowing people in opposition, intellectuals, uh, ordinary people who don't know about uh, politics, and if possible, of course, speaking uh, the languages yeah. required, whether that is you know Arabic or Spanish or Chinese, and I actually think that. Uh, that's, that's a, a pretty important thing that currently uh, journalists these days are doing better than they did uh, in my day Right. so being on the ground, knowing your stuff uh, knowing the history and of course being aware in situations of conflict in particular that you are in a situation where uh, people will challenge what you say being aware of the need to, uh, not to not to not to swallow official narratives on both sides because governments, particularly governments which have no accountability uh, and no uh, public opinion to worry about, they do lie very, very brazenly indeed, especially in the Middle East, um, and uh, you need to be uh, on your toes yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots more I can be said. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, we'll have to do a follow-up.
1: I I think, but I don't think. Again, I don't think that the Middle East is uh, unique in that sense.
0: Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I, I would be inclined to agree. Uh, I, there's there's a, a number of huge debates in in academia about the exceptional nature or or not of the Middle East, and and I think the Middle East has its own peculiarities, mm-hmm. the same as as any other region, but it, it's Absolutely. certainly not exceptional. And I think that's important to remember, and, and that's what I've I've really really appreciated from your coverage. This this sort of acknowledgement that. It's about people's lives, and and the the stories that you cover tell those try well try and convey those stories that what's happening is about people rather than about abstract entities, and I think that's what's so easily missed in coverage of the region and, and journalism broadly. That these are stories about people. So, Ian, I wonder if we can we can jump forward a, a couple of decades, and and I'll say this again: we must come back and do this again and, and fill in the gaps, but. You, you've done a lot of work sort of reflecting back on on the, the state of play of, of Israeli, Arab, Palestinian relations and your, your book Enemies and Neighbors, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017 is, is wonderful, and I strongly recommend people read that. But you've also done some interesting work about a burgeoning rapprochement and perhaps a more visible rapprochement between the Israelis and, and some of the Gulf Arab states that are sort of perhaps reflective of a changing geopolitical alignment in the region. Could you tell us a little bit about about that, about how that work came about, please?
1: So this is a, a research project that I undertook at the Middle East Centre at LSE. Um, and it was a fascinating thing to have done, because I think that uh, although it started to attract attention in recent recent. Times the last couple of years in particular, the the roots of it have been going uh, run run quite deep. And in fact, I think that um, you know geopolitical factors come together and can create a new reality, even if that reality is um, not a permanent one. It may shift at the time, at, at different times. But I think that the fundamental picture is that the um, it's Iran that has brought them together, the, um, the idea that Israel and the Gulf States in particular, especially in the disruptive era of Donald Trump's presidency, share interests. Um, it's not brand new. Again, the, the sort of relations go back in a discreet way or in a more discreet way, many years, uh, there was always clandestine contact between Israel and many Arab states, with Morocco, with Oman, um, uh, with Jordan in particular. Uh, We talked about Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president's visit to Israel in 1977. And the first stage of this really was in the uh, wake of the Oslo Agreement between Israel and the PLO in 1993, and that created a sense that there was a there was a peace process between Israel and Palestine, which was uh, maybe going somewhere. Uh, it was an important moment; everybody remembers the picture of uh, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin and Bill Clinton bringing them yeah, together of on the White House lawn. Um, September 1993. And that created uh, an opening, particularly for the Gulf states. Um, of course, Jordan made peace with Israel the following year, 1994. The Gulf states didn't. They haven't done anything uh, openly in terms of formal diplomatic relations. But the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, and more recently the Saudis uh, have become more open about this. These common interests that they have. A lot of it is about um, Iran, as I say, whether these relations will lead to something more substantial to formal uh, agreements. I doubt Uh, that was one of the questions I was looking at in this research project. Will the Gulf states, in short, be prepared to to abandon the Palestinians and to make peace uh, with the Israelis? I don't think so. Uh, I think that there was hope that that would happen. Trump Um, Trump's famous deal of the century that we've heard so much about in recent times uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, I think that they've got that wrong I think that there are limits to what any Arab states will do with Israel as long as the Palestinian issue remains uh, unresolved We're talking about generational change and economic interests security interests Sure. I, I don't think that there is the capacity for it to develop much further
0: beyond what we've seen already. And how important do you think are domestic factors in those decisions? Uh, I, I remember seeing some polling data from across the Gulf that suggested that there is widespread... Uh, anger and concern amongst the domestic populations of, of, of states such as Saudi and the Emirates about any burgeoning rapprochement, diplomatic rapprochement, with, with their, their their states and, and the Israelis? It's hard to measure, but there's certainly um, evidence
1: of constraints um, over the issue of Palestine. If you just look on uh, Arabic social media, contains multiple examples of this. The uh, the idea of normalization, tatliya, in, uh, in Arabic, is a, is, is a well-known hashtag uh, on Twitter uh, because people are opposed to it, uh, and it gives rise to uh, very, very strong feelings. Having said that, the elites in the Gulf states appear to have reached the conclusion that Iran is the greater threat to them. They don't see Israel is a direct threat, and they acknowledge, nevertheless, that the Palestinian issue, unresolved as it is, uh, is still a constraint. In terms of their own public opinion, they don't have free media, of course, but social media uh, exists, and I think that particularly on the Saudi side of things, with Mohammed bin Salman and so on, um, the, the idea of reaching out to Israel is a step too far, given the difficulty of what he's trying to achieve domestically. So, of course, for all those Gulf states, uh, there is uh, a desire to uh, to please uh, whoever's in the White House. I think that's always an important consideration. But I still think, is my conclusion in the report that I did for LSE, that there are significant uh, constraints on these relationships, as long as there isn't some movement towards yeah. uh, end of the conflict with the Palestinians.
0: Sure, and I'll be sure to share the um, the report that you did for the LSE on the on the Twitter that will go alongside this podcast. Ian, thank you so much for for sharing your your thoughts and your experiences with us. It's been absolutely fascinating. As I say, I can I can sit and listen to you talk about all of this stuff all day, but um, you've got many more important things to do than than answer my questions. But thank you so much for for taking some time out for us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again sometime
1: thank you very much
0: and thanks for listening everyone until next time